The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. It is Panthers Day today in week two of our annual division offseason recap series. We're going team by team, day by day, and the Panthers are the first team up in the NFC South. And uh, I know it looks bleak. Believe me, we'll get into that, but there are a couple rays of hope on this team every single franchise has a few rays of hope so hopefully we can highlight a little bit of both but before we get into all of that ej buddy how you doing what are you drinking tonight coffee for the double header we're gonna record yeah, me two too. tonight Twinsies. Yeah. How about so that? we get to start off with the high test and then uh move to the more interesting drinks for the second one because we can probably hang on through that one and not make idiots of ourselves but i'm i'm good we're starting a roll here second division um, that we've covered interesting team to say the least and um, but lots of fun players and we'll look at how all those pieces get together again all the losses all the ads the draft UDFAs coaching staff all that how it all fits together and where we think they'll end up well why don't we start off with uh, the same segment we start off every single team with and that's going to be a, a quick little 2021 recap you know where we started out this offseason before we talk about everything that they've added and lost since then. Uh, 2021, pretty disappointing overall. Had a pretty hot start the first three weeks of the season, then completely fell off a cliff for basically the rest of the year. Ended up at 5-12 and 12 when uh, initially they were slated for, you know, almost easily making the playoffs. And then, man, it went wrong. And <laughs> when I say went wrong, it went wrong. Uh, ended up last in the division. Had a two and six home record and a three and six road record. So oddly enough, technically, uh, by win percentage, we're a better road team than a home team. Their last five games, they closed out with five consecutive losses. Technically, they actually closed out with seven consecutive losses, but we typically only do last five games. But yeah, it was it was awful. They started out as like a shoe in for the playoffs in the first month of the year, and then by the end of the year. Uh, we were legitimately talking about them as maybe being the worst team in the league, which I can't recall the last time that happened. Yeah, the seven-game slide to finish the year is especially concerning because we 
we often talk about teams that show a little bit of spark at the end of the year, even if they had a down year and they kind of rally, they get it together and show some promise that leads fans to hope for the next year. Panthers did the opposite of that. They had their little blast at the beginning of the season, uh, slid to an 0-5 mark in the last five, but I felt necessary to extend that to seven because they didn't win a game in basically the last half of the year. That's not a good sign. That does not portend great things for 2022. So um, notable, I think the longest slide in the NFL, if I'm yeah, there can't be a worse one uh, to end I out doubt last it. year. No, yeah. I'd be shocked. Um, and it hurt more probably for Panthers fans because, again, beginning of the year, things were looking up. There was a lot of hope that this could come together. Uh, it didn't. And now we pick up the pieces and head to 2022 and, and see what they can make out of it. And what's rough is in those last five games uh, – it, it wasn't exactly nail biters. You know, they, they had an eight point loss to the Falcons. I know technically one possession, but eight point loss is still not exactly close. The average loss in the league is three points. So again, not exactly a nail biter there. Um, they lost by three possessions to the bills, got absolutely demolished. They got crushed by the bucks 32 to six. Again, another eight point loss to the saints. And then once again, got crushed by the bucks 41, 17. So it, it's not like, you know, they were one of the scrappy teams that just got unlucky uh, in a lot of cases, like, say, Detroit last year. They got murdered. <laughs> they got murdered consistently. So hopefully this year is better. Um, looking at the regime at the top, we got Scott Fitterer going into year two at general manager, which, low-key, I've actually really liked a lot of the picks that he's made uh, so far as GM. So I'm pleasantly surprised by him. Uh, not pleasantly surprised, I should say. I'm, I'm enthusiastic about what he's done so far. Uh, Matt Rule in year three, you know, when we were doing this season a few years ago when he got hired, we were really hyped on Matt Rule because he had a history of turning programs around and turning them around dramatically. You look at Temple, you look at Baylor, like he was seen as the guy that could fix stuff. And um, it's been anything but so far. There's been turmoil in the coaching staff, disagreements among the staff. Year two was dramatically underwhelming compared to what a lot of people expected, you know, from a, a typical Matt Rule turnaround. So, you know, maybe year three, he pulls out some of that magic he did in college, but um, it's been shockingly underwhelming. I'll say that compared to what we expected from him. And then uh, coordinators, we got Ben McAdoo, you know, popping up on the scene once again, uh, coming back to be OC for these Panthers year one on the job for them. Phil Snow, who's followed Matt Rule everywhere he's been for, God, it seems like 15, 20 years at this point. Ever. He's in year three uh, at defensive coordinator. And also, in my opinion, a, a pretty good defensive coordinator. He does some really, really creative stuff, especially when it comes to pressure packages. Uh, and then Chris Tabor, Bears fans know him well. He was the special teams coordinator in Chicago the last few years. He's now year one uh, with the Panthers as special teams coordinator. So overall, EJ, top down, uh, how do you feel about this overall, uh, let's say, power structure that's uh, leading the ship here? The pyramid at the top. I, too, have liked Scott Fitterer's work. I especially liked um, trading down in the draft last year. That was a strategy that I've thought had benefits for years, and we can't necessarily put that all on Fitterer, uh, David Tepper, the owner, brought a more 
business-focused approach. The end result in the draft was, hey, if there's not somebody we love, why aren't we getting more assets? So uh, kind of a combination between Fitterer and their owner, David Tepper. Matt Rule has turned programs around, but he hasn't done it quickly in the college ranks. And if you look at Temple and Baylor, they both hit on year three or year four. And the was NFL does... Three? I thought it was year two. Maybe, I mean, you're probably right, but... I, I thought it was typically it takes a hair longer than it does in the NFL and because the NFL, especially the modern NFL has almost zero patience for turnarounds. If <laughs> you know, this is a perfect example. If you're not really showing signs by the end of year two, the questions start and the questions have already started for Matt rule. Can he pull out a year three miracle? Does it just take three years for Matt rule to really turn a program and have the first sort of major power year? We'll see. It doesn't necessarily feel like that, but it could. So overall, you know, I like Fitterer. Rule, mm, he's, he's on a very warm seat. We'll see is the answer with him. Ben McAdoo, I haven't been thrilled with his work in the past. Uh, it was going to be hard to fill that seat either way because if the OC moves on and you need an OC and everybody thinks you're potentially one and done. Nobody really wants to show up. So McAdoo is happy to take another bite at the apple. He's there. Phil Snow, I think he covered really well. And Chris Tabor, I think is in the middle in terms of special teams coaches. He's not somebody that I get super crazy wild about, but he also has fielded very solid units. I would say solid. I would say fine. I would say, you know, median middle of the pack. So sets him up to be, you know, good there not an overwhelming combination but not one i'm like oh god this is going to be hard to watch either i just looked it up and you're, you're totally right uh rule at baylor was year three when they hit not year two that's my mistake so uh year one when it was complete teardown they went one and eleven uh -huh. um year two they went seven and six but made the texas bowl won that and then year three was when they popped, went 11 and three, went to the Sugar Bowl, and then he got hired by Carolina. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Okay, so hopefully year three magic <laughs> is then what we're hoping for uh, for Matt Rule here. Now, in terms of uh, notable coaches, a whole lot of NFL vets, a whole lot of uh, very experienced coaches here, some former head coaches, uh, some sons of famous coaches, yes, uh, ironically indeed. enough. Uh, go through Go through that list for us here. Yeah, so on offense, we have Kevin Gilbride. You might say, Kevin Gilbride, not that Kevin Gilbride, the son of that Kevin Gilbride, the Kevin Gilbride you're thinking of, uh, former Giants OC Kevin B. Gilbride. His son, uh, Kevin Gilbride, coaches tight ends for the Panthers, but he does not have the same middle name, so he is not a junior, uh, but is related. Also, James Campen for the offensive line. He's got a very high draft pick to work with this year. 19 years of NFL coaching experience, and he played in the league. He played for the Saints and the Packers. On defense, some more recognizable names. Paul Pasqualoni is the defensive line coach, former Syracuse head coach and Lions defensive coordinator. Steve Wilkes is the defensive pass game coordinator slash secondary, which is a very interesting title uh, for a guy that was former Cards head coach and Browns defensive coordinator. Al Holcomb, assistant head coach for defense, another interesting title, is a former Cards defensive coordinator. And Terrence Knighton, a lot of fans will remember that name. Uh, Pot roast. For, 
Yeah. <laughs> Former Jag, Bronco, and Washington player is the assistant defensive line coach under Paul Pasqualoni uh, for these Panthers. So a sprinkling of former players, college coaches, former NFL players, and sons of NFL coaches, not surprisingly. Terrence Knighton, uh, by the way, one of my favorite uh, interior defensive lineman from kind of like the mid 2010s. He was in, uh, he was on a couple of those really, really good Broncos teams in like 2013, 2014. I think he was on the Super Bowl team that lost to Seattle, if memory serves correctly. And then I think they won the Super Bowl the year after he left. So a little bit unfortunate for him, but he was always kind of like that that flex nose and you could play anything from like a zero to a three. He was one of the guys in that era that he was never as good as Akeem Hicks, but he played this, a similar kind of role where it's like whatever you need him to do kind of in that interior box he could do. So lovely to see him be a defensive line coach and, and somebody who I think can, can teach nose tackles, can teach three techniques, can teach five techniques. Like he, he did it all, man. So uh, love to see that he's in coaching now. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And... Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Uh, in terms of free agency losses for the Panthers, this is a... Very large chart. <laughs> uh, not going to lie. This is a, a pretty beefy chart. And these are all the players they lost. Again, it could be UFAs, SFAs, um, you know, ERFAs. Like pretty much any any free agency loss they had of, of, of any type is on this chart. But in particular, there's uh, about eight names that we want to highlight here out of the masses. Matt Paradis, who was their starting center, um, mostly starting center. Uh, he's gone now. Cam Newton, who did start five games for them at quarterback last year. I know he wasn't Cam Newton of old, but still, it's freaking Cam Newton. Got to mention that. He's no longer in the building. John Miller, uh, again, another uh, guy who got a lot of snaps for them at right guard. Um, he's no longer in the building. Daquan Jones and Morgan Fox, I'm going to kind of talk about them together because yeah. even though they were both rotational players, they both played very crucial roles for this team. Morgan Fox was like the quintessential four eye for them. Daquan Jones was anything from a three to like a cock nose. And they were both invaluable to that run defense, which at the beginning of the year was really, really, really good. Uh, Jermaine Carter, who played almost 80% of the snaps at linebacker there next to Shaq Thompson. Um, you know, even though he's not a top tier linebacker, again, you're losing a lot of starting experience, a lot of snaps. Uh, from that linebacking course. Hopefully some of the rookies can step up. Stephon Gilmore, who uh, was not there the entire year, only played about 28% of the snaps, but it's still notable. Like, they lost <laughs> Stephon freaking Gilmore, you know, former defensive player of the year, still technically in his prime. He's not in the building anymore. And then Hassan Reddick, um, Sam linebacker extraordinaire, sometimes edge, sometimes linebacker, sometimes a little bit of both. He's now in Philly. So a lot of different 
assets gone, um, not necessarily star players. Other, I mean, You could argue Gilmore, maybe, at this stage of his career. For everybody else, not necessarily star players, but guys who got a lot of snaps, a lot of starting experience, crucial role players, especially on defense. These guys are going to be pretty tough to replace, in my opinion. Feels like most of the change concentrated in the front seven on defense. Daquan Jones and Morgan Fox, it's interesting we talk about them as a kind of binary star, right? They they both sort of made up another player. And as we talk through these team previews, that's happened on more than one team where we looked at two players that were, you know, two inside linebackers or, you know, a center and a guard or, uh, in this case, a sort of interior DL and an interior to possibly exterior DL that, again, probably weren't on the field all that much at the same time. But if you sort of mash them together – you get one big role on defense that's hard to fill. So between Jones, Fox, and Reddick moving out of that front seven, that's a lot of snaps, a lot of looks, a lot of pressures that they're going to have to look to replace. Uh, we'll talk about how they're going to do that, but that feels the most notable for me. Um, and Paredes, you know, long time there, uh, a lot of snaps, eh, 50% of the snaps, but again, centers, they they just matter a little bit more. They're the folks that are typically calling protections. Got to get your quarterback used to a new center. Um, that one will hit on the offensive side. Yeah, so it's uh, it, it's a tough group to replace, but I do think that they've drafted well the last couple of years, so maybe they'll get some key contributors out of these young guns to, to soften the blow a little bit. In terms of talent that they were able to re-sign, DJ Moore was the big one. He's got another you know big deal, over $20 million a year, you know, inarguably top 10 to 12 receiver in the league even if he's not talked about as much as a lot of other guys we highlighted him in our underrated players episode he's Mr. Consistent man and uh, in terms of first round receivers which is you know maybe the, <laughs> the the position that is most fraught with peril in the draft he's one of the few first round receivers and I emphasize the word few that actually worked out so keeping him around was of utmost importance Dante Jackson, another former first-round pick of theirs. Um, they brought him back to be probably their third corner, I would imagine. I think he's always been better as a nickel. Uh, Frankie Luvu, who is a rotational linebacker for them, uh, I think he's going to end up getting more snaps than he did last year. He only played about a quarter of the time last year, but when he was on the field, he actually did have quite a few impact plays. So I think that he probably will be somewhere in the mix in that linebacker rotation. Not entirely sure how yet, but I think he will be. Uh, and then other than that, you know, it was a lot of uh, role players and special teams guys they brought back, you know, <laughs> Zane Gonzalez they brought back, Rashawn Melvin, all these kind of guys. You're forgetting that there's one in there that people are just about as angry at. They're like just a tick underneath the amount of angry they were about Christian Kirk signing with the Jaguars. Oh, Ian Thomas. Ian yeah. Thomas. Yeah, the you're right. The second tight end for the Panthers, who has very little production, uh, played a decent number of snaps for them, but got re-signed for over five and a half million, five six five point six five million, and a lot of agents low key around the league looked at that and went, "What the hell are you doing?" Because now every TE two in the league is going to look at Ian Thomas and his production, which is a pretty low bar, and say. My guy played more snaps. He had more impact. He had more catches. He had more yards. That's the starting point for our negotiations now. You're not paying him less than 5'7". We're going from 
We're going up from 5.7. There's a lot of teams around the NFL don't want to pay TE2, who is mostly a blocker and a sometime receiver, $6 bucks a year, and a lot of them are going to have to. Um, well, the- here's the problem. In most teams, he's a TE2. On the Panthers, it's him and Tommy Tremble. He technically is their TE1, but compared to all the other <laughs> TE1s in the league, he's not a TE1. So right. it's that's what makes it hard is because then all the other agents are literally saying, okay, this is a starting tight end that's um, you know more of a blocker than a pass catcher at this point in his career, even though he's, he is a pretty athletic kid, but he's, he's more of a blocker than a pass catcher. And he's getting five six so all the other actual like superstar te1s you know the kittles the wallers all these mark andrews all these guys eventually kyle pitts that can rip off a thousand yards any given year their agents are going to be like okay if he's getting five six and our guy can get four times the yardage in a good year pay him four times the money so it's it's a rough spot that this contract, I think, put a lot of other teams in because I think we're going to start seeing top-end tight ends. They're, especially if they're putting up wide receiver numbers, they're going to get wide receiver money, and that means over $20 million as the shelf, like bottom bottom shelf over $20 million. Yeah, they're going to go hunting, and the first one that's going to do that that's really going to pry the doors off is Kyle Pitts. Oh, yeah. Kyle Pitts is, we said this before the draft, the Falcons tight end. We said he should he should run as a wide receiver, right? He doesn't need to go into the draft with tight end attached to his name because it has a financial implication, and it's a big one. And if you watch the Falcons offense last year, he lined up at X and beat top corners and produced big plays. Outside, one-on-one, pure X receiver. So when he goes to get paid and they go, well, we're going to make you the top paid tight end. He's going to go, nope, you're going to pay me like the offensive threat that I am, regardless of the numbers in front of my name. And it's going to get ugly. He's not going to take a cut rate deal when he's producing in the same role, doing the same things that top rate wide receivers are. And again, yeah, the current shelf for that is 20 million, but he's not up next year. He's up two years from now. So, in, in terms of first year, you can negotiate. So the floor is going to be like 22 or 23. Well, here's how I look at it. So he and Jamar Chase are up at the same time. Justin Jefferson's going to get paid first. Yep. If Justin Jefferson's getting, I don't know, bag. 20, 28 to 30. <laughs> yeah, at this point, I can bagged. only assume he will. Jamar Chase is going to get 30. Kyle Pitts is going to say, all right, whatever Jamar Chase gets, I'm getting. Because yep. they're both going to get paid after year three. It'd be stupid not to because the market's only going to get crazier. But Kyle Pitts is going to be the first $30 million tight end, and part of that can work its way back to this Ian Thomas deal. I can almost guarantee it. Yeah, the tight ends needed to be reset. David and Joku kind of, people said, oh, he reset the tight end market. He kind of half-set it or step-set it. It needed a step increase, and Njoku was the first one that really benefited from that. Kyle Pitts is going to make Njoku's contract look like dog biscuits. <laughs> Uh, now, in terms of uh, third-party additions, these are players brought in from other teams. Xavier Woods, a safety from the Vikings, is definitely worth highlighting. Uh, one of the rare guys who played 100% of the snaps in the league. That's harder to find than you think. Perfect attendance. We, <laughs> we go over every single team, and it's it's not often we see an actual like no. one double O there. Um, so getting getting a guy who plays that many snaps for $5 million a year at a safety 
at safety, which is increasingly getting more expensive as the years go on. Pretty good value. Uh, they did pick up Deontay Foreman to be an RB2 slash 3 for them, however that shakes out. Uh, Bradley Bozeman, the center from the Ravens, uh, at only 2.8, I thought was a fantastic deal for them. Austin Corbett, the guard from the Rams, again, another guy who 99% of the snaps, so he was a rock. Uh, bringing him in to solidify the offensive line was awesome. Also brought over Johnny Hecker, the original punt god, uh, also from the Rams. He's only 32, so he's still got several more years left in him, I imagine. Uh, Corey Littleton, <laughs> seems like every year we always say, oh, that's where Corey Littleton ended up. Like, well, now he's in Carolina. Uh, Going to be rotating in that linebacker core. Damien Wilson, same thing, brought over from the Jaguars. Their linebacking core is probably just going to be a mishmash of dudes. It's going to be Shaq, obviously, but it's going to be Wilson. It's going to be Louvo. It's going to be Littleton. It's going to be some of the rookies we're going to talk about. So uh, a lot of different bodies there. Matt Ioannidis, uh, one of, I think, the more underrated kind of rotational interior defenders of the last five to six years. Always been a solid player. He's probably going to be their Morgan Fox replacement because he plays a very similar role. I don't necessarily think he's going to be as flashy as Morgan Fox is sometimes, but he'll still hold it down. Uh, Richard Higgins, also solid, like wide receiver four, bringing over from Cleveland. Uh, he's only 28 and getting, you know, 1.2 million in this receiver market. Sure. Great signing there. So, uh, again, they did patch a couple holes from their losses, not everything. I think it was solid. It was like they didn't really overspend or overspend uh, on third-party free agents. And I think that, you know, the the main priority, which was keeping DJ Moore in the building, was addressed. So free agency-wise, I thought they acquitted themselves pretty well. Pretty well, especially given the situation. They have a lame duck head coach, for lack of a better term. Unless a miracle occurs, Matt Rule's probably not in the building in Carolina. They're picking a new quarterback. They're starting over. Uh, and he would have to kind of make the playoffs, it feels like, in year three. We'll talk about that a little bit. But that is not an attractive destination for free agents. So you either have to do one thing you said they didn't do, which is wildly overpay. Look, we know you don't really want to be here, but we're going to give you 20% more than any other team's offering. Come to the building. Or you just have to sort of find guys that are willing to show up because of a connection, because of the ability to start, whatever it is. And that's harder to do. You sort of have to pick and choose and sort your way through, and you're not typically going to be the most attractive offer. Seems like the Panthers navigated those waters pretty well. Uh, Bozeman Center was quietly way more active way earlier. Um, I really felt like the Bears needed a center, so I watched the center market really closely. A lot of guys re-signed with their team for big money, and a lot of centers went off the free agency board way earlier than people thought because teams are not silly. They know that having that good center, the good pivot that can manage their line, hold their quarterback together, it's, it's almost like having a good catcher in baseball, right? Just <laughs> settle the staff down get everybody lined up right and so teams don't really want to mess around with that they don't want to they don't want to gamble with that position so getting bozeman in was huge corbett to play next to him uh i don't know this is interesting they paid him 5.9 million almost 6 million a year uh and if you go back to the contracts the two guys they lost signed morgan fox signed with the chargers for 1.1 so Dick i i have a theory about why this happened by the way in terms Which, of like Morgan Fox or Ionitis? Why they chose to pay Ionitis 5.9 when Fox costs less than two. Yeah. 
where did Ioannidis play? And who did he play for in college? Yeah, no, he played. He, he was on that rule team at Temple. For Rule sure. Loves him, so. And if you look through both the coaches, which we talked about first, and the players, you will see Temple, specifically Temple, but Temple and Baylor connections throughout both the player mm-hmm. roster and the coach roster. Matt Rule is a very relationships-based coach. And you might say, well, now, EJ, all coaches are relationship-based, especially in the NFL. It's true, but some lean farther towards that and some lean not as hard towards that. Matt Rule is a strongly relationships-based coach. You can see that in the makeup of his coaching staff and also, as you mentioned, in the player roster. But Daquan Jones was the one that made all the money. Bills paid him $7 million. So... In terms of role replacement, I think you're right. It's probably closer to Fox. In terms of money, he's a lot closer to Daquan Jones. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I do kind of want to expand on that uh, relationship-based roster building because that did show up in the draft as well, which is as good as time as any to bring up their draft. Um, again, Fitterer, I thought, has has done a pretty good job in their last two drafts. We loved their draft last year, even though it, the one major qualm I had was, okay, you pass on Justin Fields for a corner. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. Thank God coffee. they did, but yep. probably wasn't the best move for them. Not, And I love J.C. Horn. J.C. Horn had an astronomical grade on, but they needed a quarterback. They passed on one. Other than that, I feel like they've been very, very good at drafting. Uh, the last couple of years. And this year is no different. Um, Ikem Aquanu at sixth overall, definitely appropriate value. He, he fits what they want, which is a tackle that can help them run the ball and run the ball and run the ball again because they do not trust their quarterback play whatsoever. They want to be able to run the ball as a team 30-plus times a game. I'm not saying McCaffrey's going to get 30-plus carries or touches, but kind of mixing in all the running backs together, they want to get 30-plus carries a game. That is their goal. Uh, they did not have another pick till round three where they picked up Matt Corral, hoping and praying that he becomes, you know, the next kind of day two quarterback to blossom, which we have seen in recent years. Dak, Russell Wilson, it's it's not completely impossible. Um, so they're hoping that he becomes the next one. Uh, Brandon Smith in round four, who is ultra, and I mean ultra physically gifted. Doesn't really know what he's doing on the field yet, but in terms of physical talent, He's he's rarer than rare. Like he was a five star recruit. Everybody in the in the entire nation wanted him. Rule himself probably recruited him to Baylor because every program wanted him. Ended up going to Penn State, um, and uh, and and being there for three years. Uh, pick six, Amari. Mar- um, speaking of athletes, Amari Barno uh, from Virginia <laughs> Tech. You can tell there's kind of a theme here. Matt Rule loves athletes. Yeah, Barno was one of the most athletic, uh, kind of hybrid linebacker edge types in this entire class. We're talking like a guy who's like 6'5 and runs 4'3". It's utterly insane. 
their second six-round pick, Cade Mays from Tennessee, who had a pretty good senior bowl, was actually very solid at the senior bowl. He's going to be an interior starter for them. Not entirely sure what spot on the line, but he can kind of fill in at any of those three, so I'm not really worried about it. He'll find a job. And then round seven, talking about relationships-based roster building, Kalen Barnes, the corner from Baylor, again, one of the fastest, most athletic DBs in this entire class, who also happened to be recruited to Baylor by Matt Rule, who always has prioritized speed at virtually every single position, as you can tell by their draft. So uh, he, he definitely has soft spots for his former players from college. Um, that has shown up every single year. He's been in Carolina. Last year, he signed Hassan Reddick, again, another former Temple player for him. Um, he cares deeply for guys that, that he knows from his past, and that's not a bad thing. It's definitely not a bad thing. We, we've seen you know Jimmy Johnson take that approach where when he was drafting in Dallas, he, he drafted a whole bunch of dudes that he recruited in high school. So it can definitely work, but um, at the same time, I do think that they're their, their draft methodology has been rather predictable because it's either find the guy that runs fast or find the guy that, that Matt Rule recruited, and he's probably going to end up a Panther. Yeah, or both, or <laughs> like both. Barnes. Yeah. Uh, guy that played for him at Baylor and guy that ran a 4-3-7. Yeah, we probably should have chalked that one up to the Panthers pre-draft. We didn't, but that's okay. Again, it feels kind of like they took this sort of handcuff approach or bracketed approach, and you know, Brandon Smith and Amari Barno, while they're not the same physically, feels like they kind of felt like, okay, if we weld these two together, can we get Hassan Reddick? Right? Can we <laughs> can we put a very I mean, hybrid kind athletic? Of, yeah, exactly. Sorta. Between yeah. half and half, like that seems to be the approach. Well, you can call it a shotgun approach. You can call it hybrid, whatever. Um, neither one are the same, but both have similar characteristics and feel like they will probably end up playing in a pretty similar spot because of what they do well. Matt Corral, a lot of people will be like, oh, their second pick was Matt Corral. What are you doing? Well, it's true, but they basically had one pick in the top 100 picks, which is hmm, about 40% of the draft, right? They had yeah. pick six, and then the next one was 94. So... The fact that Corral was still on the board is maybe lucky for them. They roll the dice. It's not a lot of investment for a potential starting quarterback. Um, doesn't have a lot of huge roadblocks uh, in terms of folks on the roster that he's clearly not going to overtake. Look, if Matt Corral starts lighting it up in camp, we don't know. If he gives them the spark, he could play. Do I think that's likely? No, I think Rule will go with veterans before that. But... Matt Corral is its as good a time as any to talk about this. He's the kind of Cinderella hope for this team. It, mm -hmm. You know, Darnold's not really going to do it. He started off well in the first two and a half games last year, and I went, ha-ha, see? I knew if he was out of the Jets organization, he'd play, ho-ho-ho-ho, oh, oh, God, it's happening again. <laughs> and then it happened pretty much for the rest of the year until he got knocked out. A lot of people, including me, P.J. Walker fans, P.J. Walker coming over from a different league has shown many flashes, but consistency is a funny thing in the NFL. You can have flashes for your first three or four games. DCs get a book on you. They get some tape, and suddenly all that stuff you were winging off the bench doesn't work anymore, and you've got to find a way to grind it out and produce consistently. A lot of guys have struggled with that shelf. P.J. Walker has not 
overcome the consistency shelf still has all the ability in the world and could blossom right it takes a while but so could matt corral so the hope is from sort of down the roster on the quarterback board here i don't think darnold's going to lead them to anything i think that's going to become readily apparent if they choose to start him at the beginning of the year and then one of those guys has got to get the hot hand if this team's going to go anywhere rest of the draft Aquanu up top chalk like fit with their system fit with what they want to do physically i think he's a great player he was my ot1 you know great and we talked about the other guys kate mays one of the guys that i uh liked a little bit less when i dug in more i saw his performance senior bowl i was like cool i went back and watched tape on him tennessee and i was like hmm Okay, the more I watch, the less I like. So I wasn't surprised he went in round six. Um, and then Kalen Barnes, burner, going to play special teams for you. Can be on the field as a sort of fourth corner. You know, you put somebody that's a deep speed threat in the slot, you put Kalen Barnes on him, you're not going to outrun him. Yeah. He's, he's fast, fast. So, and decent corner too, in terms of technically, um, not just a track guy. Uh, has track speed but is a football player so good pick for them late you know he's got holes to fill in in his game but he doesn't need to come in and start for them so pretty good landing spot for him as well this draft overall other than Aquano, Aquano, i think ultimately will start somewhere <laughs> on day one i don't know exactly what spot he'll he'll find a role in but he will um i don't think that there's any other day one starters in this draft class but that doesn't mean that there won't be three to four starters eventually out of this class. That is also extremely possible. It is a little bit of a swing for the fences type class because, you know, again, you're taking a late day two quarterback. That's the definition of a swing for the fence. Brandon Smith is absolutely a swing for the fences pick at linebacker, but if he hits, he's a grand slam. Amari Barno, same thing. Like, you, you don't really know, but you have pretty high hopes based on his athleticism and his production. He had a shitload of tackles for loss. And then Kalen Barnes, again, physical skill set. He, he has a starting corner physical skill set. It's just a matter of coaching him up with all the other stuff. So you could potentially have a lot of hits here, or you could potentially have one starter out of a draft class where you're picking at the top of every single round, which would not be ideal. So, you know, it might be a couple of years till we figure out exactly what kind of class we're looking at here, but it could go one of two ways. Uh, in terms of undrafted players, they did get a couple guys that I absolutely think will stick on the roster. Uh, Charleston Rambo, I think will make it at receiver there uh, even if he's like wide receiver five I, I think he will make it again very very talented deep threat not just from the speed angle but from his ability to track the ball and you know bring in tough catches deep down the field which is a skill set that is very very difficult by the way like you can run fast but if you can't actually track the ball you know take the proper angle stack on a corner you know, fight for position while also having your eyes up. Like, it's a tough thing to do. He's very good at it. Marquand McCall, uh, you know, just kind of a, a rolling ball of butcher knives there at Kentucky. Uh, squatty body, straight up nose tackle. But if you're looking for cheap bodies that can come in and replace what you lost on the interior defensive line, he's somebody who I think will make it doing that. And then uh, one that you're very fascinated by, Aaron Mosby from Fresno State. Yeah, Aaron Mosby really interesting player that uh i think got low-key buzz he wasn't somebody that people watched first and as they got to those sort of cleanup <laughs> yeah. players before the draft they were like wait a minute this guy's got really good size big tall square player 
he has flashes on tape. He has plays where it all comes together and you go, damn, why didn't, why wasn't anybody talking about this? Some of it's consistency. Some of it's that he played at Fresno state. So, you know, played late games, a lot of times on the West coast after a lot of folks went to sleep, didn't get a ton of media hype, didn't have a ton of stats, but was productive. And, again, is a guy that can come in and take a bite at that Hassan Reddick production. Is he going to be Hassan Reddick right out of the box? No, I don't think he is. Two or three years from now, could we see him make a push to be a solid rotational edge? He has that kind of skill. McCall and Rambo, we both got to see at the Shrine Bowl. Uh, Mm -hmm. McCall is, he's a leader on defense. He's loud. And I mean loud in a good way. You could he hear talks him so much shit. <laughs> you could hear him every day at practice, right? And he's talking to his own guys, telling them to step it up. He's talking to the other guys, telling them what he's going to do to him. You know, he's laughing in between downs. He is a loud, vocal, engaged, and engaging player. Um, you know, as a physical specimen, he is about as wide as he is tall and plays that way on the field. He is not easy to move, he's quick at that size as well he's not just one of those tree stumps and rambo is another guy we got to interview which was really cool because a lot of people know him from miami because that was his last year but he spent four years at ou before that at oklahoma Mm -hmm. and had experience with all the quarterbacks that came through oklahoma and are now in the league so was able to talk about that he was able to talk about his approach he's a very experienced wide receiver even though everybody that knows him from miami was like oh he's the he's there one year he didn't have great production sort of a down year from miami overall very savvy so uh i think he's got a chance to fill in on that receiver core is he going to start no is he going to be a very good three or four that plays special teams for them he could be very quickly yeah i think he's going to make it i really do in which undrafted receiver it's very easy to get your heart broken by that but i do think he's going to make it um, in terms of team floor, team ceiling, this is our final segment for every single team. I I got to be honest, Panthers fans, I really don't mean to do this to you. <laughs> I was going through their schedule. It's not pretty. I think this is going to be the first overall pick. I, I My ceiling for them, like, I think it's five wins. I really do. And it's not necessarily a function of the team being – awful but it's it's a matter of the team not quite being all the way there especially at the quarterback position plus their schedule is just fucking brutal i mean you start off with cleveland which depending on the deshaun watson suspension situation which we still don't know what's going on there as of the time of us recording this like that that could be a loss right out the gate against a fully locked and loaded cleveland browns team and you got the giants who i think will be a lot better uh, with Brian Dable, you got the Saints, who are always a tough out, regardless of, <laughs> of what their roster looks like. They always play people tough. You got first half of the season Cardinals, which is a very different story than second half of the season Cardinals. You got the Niners, who are a threshing machine. You got the Rams, the Bucks. You got two games against the division rival Falcons, maybe a split there, but you're also playing against the, the Bengals, the Ravens, the Broncos. This is all in like the first 10 games of the year. They could be like two and eight in the first 10 games and then you're hoping to get to five from there on out so i i have them as as five wins of the ceiling and if things go really piss poor two win floor first overall pick and i it, it pains me to say that because going into last year i was so optimistic about this team but the combination of quarterback situation we think is still 
Yeah. And really tough schedule and unproven offensive line, even with some of the additions they've made. I don't know, man. I think they're going to be in the Bryce Young sweepstakes. I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, my ceiling is a little bit more optimistic than yours, but it comes with a big asterisk after it that said, you know, if magic happens, right? And it's like, if all the magic happens is probably a better way to say that, right? If the year three Matt Rule magic kicks in, if probably either PJ Walker or Matt Corral gets hot, and I, I realize that that sounds funny coming out, right? <laughs> it's not something that you want to be betting on. Um, if they stay healthy, they've lost a lot of depth, right? If injuries start to pile up, they're going to have to win the close ones. And even if they do all of that, stay healthy, coaching is awesome, they get something at quarterback that we don't expect, and they win some nail biters. Seven wins. Like, that's yeah. that's the top. And my floor is the same as yours, two wins. If the losses stack early, they get a couple of key injuries and a rookie quarterback or a right now career backup quarterback can't light a fire under the offense, it's going to get ugly quick. The lame duck situation with the coaching staff is just going to intensify. People are going to check out and it'll be tough to get to two wins. And I know that sounds ridiculous with the amount of talent that's on this team, but it's a situation that's uh, there's a lot of pressure and I know everybody in the NFL thrives on pressure, but basically everything has to go right for them to win just less than 50% of their games. That's not a great situation. David Tepper is rich enough where he doesn't care that he gave these guys six year contracts. No, he doesn't care. And Scott Fitterer was hired a year after rule. Like he didn't, he didn't hire rule. He got there after rule. So I, I, I'm not advocating for this. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm not saying I want it to happen. I never want people to lose their jobs. David Tepper doesn't give a shit. He's got enough money where it's like, fine, I'm going to pay you out the other three years remaining on your deal. I don't care. We're getting rid of the head coach. Probably keeping Fitterer because, again, he wasn't there as a package deal with Rule. He got a year after. And then you let Fitterer hire his own coach. And because Tepper's not gonna not gonna stand for he's not gonna stand for being bottom of the division for three straight years. No. That's not the kind of guy he is. He's ultra aggressive. He's one of the richest owners in the league, and I have to imagine that the the ego of a ultra ultra billionaire that is one of the richest owners in the league is not gonna stand for being a bad football team. So no, uh, and I mean this is he just ditched an entire half-made practice facility, the land, the real estate true. corporation, <laughs> everything. Like because there was a dispute and instead of getting involved in a legal battle, he just put the real estate holding corp in bankruptcy and said, "Nope, we're defaulting. You can take it. Do whatever you want with it." Right? Yeah. He, he is not a guy that's afraid to cut his losses. Uh, and that's a it's a pretty serious loss. So the idea of paying off coaching salaries to get better in a hurry. And the scenario that I put out where everything went right, actually, Panthers fans, cover your ears, might be the worst case scenario. Because then this they keep everybody. <laughs> if this team wins seven games and shows hope under a rookie quarterback, there's going to be voices that say, lot of improvement like things are looking up maybe we should run it back and Hell, i might be one of those voices to be honest depending well, on how it looks <laughs> exactly and then you're in this 
tipsy-turvy kind of limbo land where you're like, wow, yeah, but if they revert next year to a three- to five-win team, we've wasted another year where we could have been, again, installing a new regime, burning that year of a rookie quarterback that's not great, their first year. Uh, it's never very good. And getting that sort of out of the way and setting up for the next year, we've just basically kicked that can down the road if they come out with near half their wins this year. So that might actually end up being the worst case scenario. I know that sounds terrible if you're a Carolina fan. Um, <laughs> it's kind of where they're at. Yeah, so I don't know. There's no real there's no real easy answer here to feel good about. But I will say, if they are the worst team in the league and they get Bryce Young, I mean, there's, there's worse fates than that. I mean, there have been a lot of teams that, I'm not going to use the word tanked, but have... Uh, achieve the same results as, as tanking, like maybe unintentionally against their will, and ended up getting the first overall pick and getting really good quarterbacks out of it. I look at Arizona. I look at you know Cincinnati in recent years. Um, there's there's worse results than getting Bryce Young as your quarterback of the future. So uh, it, if it happens, it happens. You know Panthers fans, they're a diehard group. They're going to support the team regardless. They're still gonna they're still gonna hope for the best and. Um, I hope for the best too, because it's a really fun fan base. It's a really great town. I was just there recently, uh, last fall, and it's a, it's a really, really special place. And I, I wish them all the success and happiness in the world. But with all that being said, we have three more NFC South teams to hit this week. Up next, I think is the Falcons, correct? So we'll be doing that tomorrow, uh, same time, same place. So uh, make sure to come back for that because there is a lot to talk about when it comes to Atlanta. A lot of exciting things that have happened in the last six months or so. Hope to see you then. And uh, until then, cheers. Take care. Bye.